Good morning, Grace Meridian Hill. Our scripture passage this morning is from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13, and that is found on page 6 in your bulletin, if you'd like to turn there. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you were proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the, of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I write to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. We are continuing in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've come across uh, a tough passage, a tough passage to work through, which it's always the case, but maybe especially on a day like this, we really need to start with prayer and ask God to help us. So let's pray. Jesus, these are hard words to hear, maybe confusing words, and so we acknowledge right from the start that we really need your Holy Spirit. So please come and, and, and sort of uh, lower the defenses of our hearts. Turn up the volume of the grace of Christ. Uh, strengthen our resolve to know the truth and not run. Uh, deepen our trust in you that you always speak to us for our good and our salvation. Remove all doubt of your character, of your cross, of your love for us. And give us a posture of servants that come before your word and say, Speak, Lord, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. So help us now, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
I'll never forget my high school water polo coach, Coach Tim Quinn. Toughest coach I ever had. Coach Quinn played on the U.S. national team, water polo team, and my word, it always felt like he was training us for the Olympics. <laughs> Kicked my butt every day, and I'm so glad for it, not just for the athlete that he made me into, but the man that he also made me into being. I also remember my 10th grade English teacher, Mr. Holdridge, who, the moment he stepped into the class, was all over us, gave us C's and D's in the first quarter just to serve up a, a wake-up call, and he was right. He was right. We all thought we were smarter than we were, entitled to good grades. And Mr. Holdridge took a personal interest in me and taught me to write better probably than any other teacher I've had. You know, it sounds cliche. It really does. But the teachers that I most appreciate looking back are the ones who most administered what you might call tough love. I wouldn't have said so then. Of course not. But I do now. It's just like Hebrews 12, 11 tells us, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so I wonder if any of you have ever received something that you might describe as tough love in a school setting, or maybe in a church setting or a workplace or in the home, or among friends. Have you ever experienced a situation in your life when someone loved you enough to call you out, to make you even a little uncomfortable? It probably wasn't pleasant at the time, but looking back, a time that you've now come to admit that it was exactly what you needed. See, today's passage is about what's called church discipline. Uh, church discipline, which is really at its heart a form of tough love. You see, here, here's the good news of God's grace. God loves us so much that he accepts us just as we are. That's good news. But here's good news too. God loves us too much to leave us as we are. He changes us. He loves us too much to leave us in the stranglehold of the suicidal powers of sin. He changes us. He hounds us. This too is the love of Christ. This is tough love, and this is what we find in this passage. We'll look at three things. First, the problem of pride. Secondly, the provision of tough love. And thirdly, the power of the Passover lamb. First, the problem of pride, and secondly, the provision of tough love, and thirdly, the power of the Passover lamb. Number one, problem of pride. You heard it, it's pretty clear. The problem in this church here is that Paul has gotten word that there's a case of incest in the church. Verse one, it's actually reported that there is, a, there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. You see, for all its famed sexual liberation, even Roman culture in Paul's day frowned upon intimate relations between relatives. Cicero once wrote that it is unbelievable when a mother-in-law marries son-in-law. But this is what we have, a man who's in relationship with his stepmother. 
And of course, Scripture explicitly names this as sin. For instance, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. There's reason for concern for this individual continuing in this pattern of behavior. But did you notice the real problem, or at least Paul's greatest concern in this passage, was what the Corinthian church community had been doing, and that is this, they'd been tolerating this sin. They had been making excuses for it, not dealing with it, not loving this brother enough to talk to him about it. And you might say, well, why might a church community such as the Corinthian church or perhaps such as ours shrug at such sins, overlook them, look past them? Why would a church community shrug at sin? Well, there are a couple things we find here. Number one, pride. In verse two, Paul says, and you are proud, puffed up. And then in verse six, your boasting is not good. And this probably doesn't mean that the Corinthians were wearing t-shirts that said, incest is best, right? Not that kind of boasting. Rather, their spiritual pride probably sounded something like this. Come on, it's not that bad. It's just one person. You see, pride that tells you that we're above this. Pride that tells you that you're mature enough to handle even the creeping incidences of sin in your life and others. Pride that tells you that you're, you've reached a sort of level of spiritual sophistication that those other things that other people struggle with, well, you're immune to it, or at least it doesn't really cost you like it might cost them. The problem here, of course, is the pride of overestimation. As the Olympics come to a close, I don't know if you experienced this watching these different events, which of course none of us know anything about, how easy it is to watch just a few minutes of curling, or of big air, or of cross-country skiing, or short track skating, and before you know it, you're pretty sure that you would do much better than they would if you just had a chance. <laughs> Critiquing them and scoring them as if they're just buffoons for not getting it right every single time, and so some people have suggested, I think wisely, with a wink in their eye, I think that before every single Olympic event, they should send out one just ordinary average person out there to give it a shot, <laughs> right? So we could see exactly what they're about to accomplish, to fall on their face, to fail, so that all of us that are watching at home in the comfortable couches that we sit on, and we think to ourselves, well, I could do that, that we would realize we can't. Uh, people, we really can't. And you know, it's no different when we look at ourselves in the mirror, not the TV screen, and assess ourselves morally. When we look at the ways in which we ought to love other people, or when we critique people that seem to be falling on their faces as they attempt to love as Christ has loved, and we say to ourselves, well, I could do that. What is wrong with them? They should be able to do better. And dear friends, you need to be able to say and see uh, you can't. You really can't. We can't save ourselves from falling short of the perfect standard of the love of God that he calls us to love with. We can't save ourselves from sin and unrighteousness. 
We can't rescue ourselves or stop ourselves because of the pride of overestimation. We saw it in the Corinthian church. We see it in our own hearts. Pride, secondly, you also see winking at sin and shrugging at sin in communities because of creeping worldliness. Worldliness, that's just adopting the standards of the world around us, neglecting the word of God, sort of letting the surrounding culture influence you more than God's word itself. We see this happening in the Corinthian church on every page of this letter that Paul wrote to them. They're sort of moving the goalposts, and so they're able to say, well, you didn't really miss the mark. You seem to be hitting it every time, worldliness. Thirdly, bad theology. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul mentions a slogan that apparently had become popular in the church. It went like this, all things are permissible for me. All things are lawful for me. Sort of reflecting a, a, a twisted understanding of God's grace. If God forgives, then what, matter, what does it matter what I do? I can do whatever I want to do. I'm free to sin as I please. Well, that's simply what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran German theologian, once called cheap grace. Not the real thing. Bad theology leads a community to shrug at sin. And fourthly and lastly, fear. Oh, we're well accustomed to this one. Fear. Because it's hard. And it's uncomfortable to tell one of your friends that they're doing something wrong. Because we know that it might cost us something, maybe even that friendship. And so we get non-confrontational, right? Or we sort of take on a, a don't ask, don't tell approach. You suspect something, but you kind of look the other way, which you know is really a form of selfishness. Anytime I'm motivated by fear, I'm motivated by self-preservation, and it's all about me. In fact, some commentators believe that this man in question may have been a person of high social standing in the local city. And so the church was very proud of having him in the church. Or maybe he was a wealthy patron, as we know the Corinthian church had many wealthy patrons. And so they were afraid of challenging him and losing him, perhaps even his money. And therefore the church was enabling him, staying quiet, tolerating him and his sin, the language that Paul uses here in verse 1. Pride and worldliness, bad theology, fear, all hosts of reasons why we can tend to get sloppy or even soft in addressing the things that plague our souls. Dear friends, how about us? Are we a community that is shrugging at the known sins of our brothers and sisters? Uh, for now, I'm not talking about you needing to go and police and find out things that you don't yet know. I'm just talking about the things that you know of one another or that you suspect of one another. Because you love people, are you motivated to speak truth to them with gentleness and care? Are we a community that's shrugging at the known sins of our brothers and sisters? Are we enabling someone in their sin? You see, because the focus of this passage is on the community. And God's message to us that if you're staying silent, you're not loving her. You're in fact not loving him. And there's a good chance that you're loving yourself more than anyone else. Number one, we see here the problem of pride. 
But secondly, we see also in this passage the provision of tough love. So what does Paul tell them to do? Or what does Paul say that they should have already have done? Well, we hear about it in verse 2. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Verse 13 also says this, expel the wicked person from among you. And this is what the church has traditionally called excommunication. That's the formal removal from membership as an act of church discipline. Formal removal from church membership. I remember the first time I ever heard that word excommunication. It's a strange word I know that can be off-putting to so many people. For me, it was years ago when Madonna was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. I don't know the first time you heard about it or what associations you might have. I know it's a word that sounds strange or maybe even offensive to many of you. I'm going to take some time, therefore, to explain it to you. Let's start here. Why? Why? Why does the Bible instruct the church to practice church discipline more broadly or excommunication more specifically? Paul here in this passage gives us two reasons, two purposes. The first purpose of excommunication is the spiritual rescue, the spiritual rescue of your brother or sister. Verse 5 says this, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. See, the Bible describes the church as the realm in which Jesus reigns most supreme. And so the world outside the church, therefore, is described as the dominion of Satan. So hand this man over to Satan is simply another way of saying, remove him from all the rights and privileges of membership within the church. Turn him loose. It's not a word of condemnation, just simply a word of formal separation. In Matthew 18, 17, Jesus uses different words to communicate the same idea. There, Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, treat them as an outsider to the church, which of course means with all love and respect and care, but you see our brother, our sister is acting like they're a stranger to the love of God, blowing off the care of God. So what we need to do, Jesus says, is put sort of a mirror in front of her And treat him or her like a stranger to the saving love of God because we're deeply concerned that that's what he actually may end up being, a stranger to the love of God. Which is why verse 5 makes clear that the goal here is the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The flesh here is not our physical bodies, but rather our fallen humanity. So that means the destruction of the flesh is a reference to overcoming sin in his life, including the sin of refusing to repent. In other words, the ultimate goal of excommunication is to soften his heart so that he might see sin for what it really is. 
not being enabled by an enabling church, but being confronted with the severity of his or her situation so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your goal is that, that their hard heart might be softened, that they might turn from their sin. Your prayer is that they might be reawakened to the mercy of Christ. And so what you have to understand and what I hope you're beginning to hear is that Paul is not saying give up on him. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Discipline, rightly understood and rightly done, is a last resort act of love. Of love. Tough love, but you've got to understand it's not vindictive or punitive, it's corrective. You see, because sin really is lethal. More than we want to believe, and more than we typically behave. Last week when the great evangelist Billy Graham passed away, Kathy Lee Gifford famous media personality who is also a Christian. She gave an interview on the Today Show that some of you might have heard, and during that time she was sharing about her friendship with Billy Graham and also about his ministry. And as she's describing his ministry, she describes sin with this language. I thought it was helpful. She said, sin is the malignancy of the soul. You see, she's right. And we so often are wrong. Sin is not just a little problem and not just a little mistake. Sin is a cancer. It's a cancer. And we must treat it. And we must care for one another when we spot evidences of it. You see, excommunication and the totality of church discipline is a rescue mission. It's a healing mission. It's a love mission, dear friends. Personally, I've never been excommunicated, but I have been sternly confronted by church leaders before, even as a pastor. And I'm so glad they did. I can say that in all honesty. I'm, I'm so grateful that others would love me that much. And that's not because it wasn't uncomfortable and even painful. But I know I need it. Do you? I know I need it most, especially in those times when I don't want it. It's a pretty good indicator that I might need that accountability and strong love the most when I'm most resisting and running away. But there's a second purpose of excommunication. The first we saw is the spiritual rescue of your brother or sister. The second is the spiritual health of the church community. Verse 6, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. You might be familiar if you light fires. I'm talking about in a fireplace. If you light fires, sometimes you need to use a, a, a little starter log to get the fire going. Well, sort of like that in ancient times, leaven was just a small piece of fermented dough that was used to make bread dough rise, to spread the yeast across the batch of dough. And so what is Paul's point here? As one commentator put it, 
It's this. Leaven has unstoppable effects out of all proportion to its size. It doesn't take a lot for yeast to ferment a whole batch of dough. Likewise, sin, when tolerated in a community, even of one member's sin, in fact, spreads to other members of the church and affects the entirety of the church. And you have to understand when we hear the word of God say this, it's Not simply telling us that the danger is that everyone in the church is suddenly going to start committing incest. Now that may be the case here or there. As the standards of God's word, his directions for how life works best and how best we can become more like Christ become fuzzy to us and we start using alternative ways and visions of life. But see, the great danger that Paul is touching on here is the danger of normalizing sin in the community. It's not that bad, right? See, the problem then is not only the spread of sexual immorality or incest per se, it's sin of all kinds become normal. Materialism becomes normal. Sexual sin becomes normal. Gossip becomes normal. Arrogance becomes normal. Turning your head the other way when you see evidence of sin, becomes normal. And then you have step by step and little by little, the yeast of sin, as it were, spreading through the whole batch of dough, affecting every one of us. And dear friends, you have to understand the greatest cost of the normalization of sin is the normalization of the grace of God. Where the gospel no longer becomes joy to us. Where Christ and his mercy become sort of also a shrug of the shoulders to you. You might have seen also at the Olympics, I'm all into the Olympics, y'all. <laughs> Esther Ledeca, skier, snowboarder from the Czech Republic. One of the enduring images from this last Winter Games. She was a skier who had never finished better than 19th in the Super G race, and she flies down the hill and comes in first place, overcoming the last Olympics gold medal winner by .01 seconds, and the look on her face is priceless. She stands there at the base of the hill with the whole crowd on the mountain cheering her on because she had just won the gold medal, knowing that the TV cameras are on her, so the whole world is celebrating her, and she simply cannot believe it. Literally, her, she is stunned. She has no expression on her face for a good minute. She's looking around. You hear her mutter, no, must be some kind of a mistake. <laughs> She even says later on, how did that happen? She just did, I mean, so different from other athletes who immediately cheer and say, I told you so, right? Here is a perfect picture of what expression ought to be on the face of every person who's encountered the grace of God. Forgiven of your sins, who, who, me? must be some kind of a mistake. 
loved by God despite all the mistakes that you've made. Chosen as a prized child, loved as a son and as a daughter in the family of God. There must be some kind of a mistake. I know my record here. Loved with an unbreakable love, a forgiving love, a glorying love. A God who not only forgives you, but also says he'll never leave you or forsake you. Kind of a love. Those that understand the grace of God simply shake their head in stunned silence and say, how did that happen? You just won the great prize and you can't believe that it truly might be so. Dear friends, when sin is normalized and grace is normalized, you never respond to the gospel like that. You're never surprised by the promise of grace. When we shrug at sin, whether in our lives or in the lives of other people, what we lose most is the gospel. What we lose most God. Don't you know? That's what's at stake. That's who's at stake. Don't you want him so? Don't you want him so? Before we move on, let me offer six. That sounds long. <laughs> six super quick points of clarification. Because I think they're important. We're talking about a hard topic here, excommunication, church discipline. It requires some clarification. First, excommunication should always be carried out with appropriate grief, not glee, and never gloating. Verse 2, should you rather have gone into what? Mourning. And have put out your fellowship, out of your fellowship, the man who's been doing this. It should also be carried out formally, not flippantly. You hear this in verse 4. So when you are assembled together and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, a sense of solemnity and formality. You don't screw around with this. This is a big deal. Number two, second, in this passage, the apostle is actually only referring to the final step in what the Bible lays out as the process of church discipline. There are a number of steps that we should always take prior to excommunication. Every member of the body of Christ is expected to be speaking truth in love to one another, as Paul himself said in Ephesians 4.15, and also to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, Colossians 3. In other words, don't talk about people, talk directly to people. As Matthew 18 instructs us, you start doing that one-on-one, highly relationally, just interpersonally. You gently urge your friend or your fellow brother or sister to turn from their sin to appeal to them with the love of Christ. And if that doesn't work, then you bring more people along and you try again. And then you try again and you try again with tears in your eyes and a heart full of love and prayer throughout the entire process. You try again, calling them to repentance, calling them to a softened heart, calling them to Jesus. And then excommunication then only takes place after numerous failed attempts to call that person to repentance and back to the grace of God. Lots of prior steps before you get here. We'll worry about that later. 
I'm in trouble now. All right. Third, third, our passage is very clear that sexual immorality is not the only kind of sin worthy of church discipline. In verse 11, Paul actually right there names those who are greedy, those who are idolaters, slanderers, drunkards, swindlers, which were likely other sins the Corinthian church was also ignoring to be sins that also warrant careful attention like this. It's not just sexual immorality that God cares about, despite the history of the practice of the Christian church in some times and places. We must not build a false hierarchy of sins, which is not to say that all sins are morally equivalent in every way, but we must be clear that the problem isn't merely the presence of sin or a certain type of sin. It's the absence of repentance. We're all sinners. And all of us will sin in small ways and big ways at some time or another. The problem isn't the presence of sin, to say it again. It's the absence of repentance. The problem is a hardened heart, one that's become or is becoming non-responsive to the love and the truth of Christ. Fourth, when the passage says, put out of your fellowship and do not associate with sexually immoral people, it does not mean, it is not mean that we cut off friendships with someone who is indulging in sin. Because then we would have no friends. In 2 Thessalonians 3.14, Paul uses the same language, do not associate with them, but he also clarifies, do not regard them as an enemy. Don't do that. So don't cut them off from your life. Then what does do not associate with them mean? Well, you know, the word is actually used in the Old Testament in the context of baking. In Hosea chapter 7, Exodus 29, baking, it means commingling even confusing, mixing in the way that you mix together flour and water and salt and yeast, mashing it in together until they become one whole. It's that degree of intimacy and indiscriminate mixing that Paul says we must not do. And so he even names eating meals which have in the ancient world covenantally, spiritually significant meaning to it. But he's not saying defriend people or distance yourself in a way where you've cut off all relationship. He's simply saying don't join yourself in a way where you're not seeing the difference between where they're at and what they most need in love and the way in which you're walking with them. It means walking with them surely, but knowing that one of your main objectives is gently and according to the providential opportunity of God calling them to repentance and calling them back to Christ. Fifthly, our passage is super clear that none of this means that we shouldn't have friendships with people at work or in the neighborhood with people who have different beliefs and lifestyles as yours. Paul is talking about Christians in the church, people who are sealed by the blood of Jesus and therefore are expected to live according to the life of Jesus. And so Paul says in verse 9, I'm not at all meaning the people of this world. 
who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you'd have to leave this world. So he reiterates in verse 11 that he's talking about those who claim to be a brother or a sister. I mean, you know the stories. Jesus himself spent loads of time befriending what traditional society would have called, quote-unquote, sinners and tax collectors. Paul did, too, whenever he went to a new city. This is part of knowing people and authentically communicating the life of Christ to people around you, let alone simply having an authentic friendship with people who are made in the image of God. But even Jesus himself spoke to people that were in known and unrepentant sin, even amongst his own disciples and those who were close to him in his community. He spoke truth to them. But to the world, the goal is the grace of winsome invitation. So Paul says in verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Because the terrible hypocrisy of Christians is that we tend to be more critical of the sins of the world than we do the sins of the church. And we got to stop doing that. And we have no integrity to address the, yes, real sins and evils of the world until we are taking care of matters in-house. Sixth and finally, in no way should we practice church discipline in a way that makes the church community ungracious, self-righteous, judgy. Don't forget the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians that we've been studying. Chapter 1, verse 4, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, reminding us that we are all sinners saved not by our smarts or our strong morals, but by the love of Christ himself. Verse 28 of the same chapter reminds us God chose the weak things of the world, the lowly things of this world, the despised things, meaning that we are to be a community that joyfully admits always that we are weak, every single one of us. Chapter 2, verse 18, if any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. In other words, we need to be a community in which repentance is normal. Repentance is like breathing. Honestly dealing with the sins of our lives, gently and humbly challenging one another when we see sins in your lives, but together repenting as people commonly desperate for the grace of God. And speaking of the grace of God, let me finish with this quick point. Quick point, but absolutely the most important point. Number three, the power of the Passover lamb. You saw Paul reference Christ, our Passover lamb, and he does so in the context of talking about leavened bread and unleavened bread and all this bread. And of course, he's talking about the story of the Exodus when God's people were released from slavery under the leadership of Moses were set free in the last night in which they were in Egypt before they became free people. God called them to observe a feast of unleavened bread uh, where yeast became the metaphor of cleansing out the old and beginning the new. A a new batch of dough is exactly what God was going to make his people into being. God also called them to put the blood of 
a sacrificed lamb upon the doorpost so that people would know, so that, sorry, the angel of God would know that a sacrifice has already been made, that that household would not be judged because the lamb took judgment in their place. Paul says, verse 7, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here are three quick promises that we need to hold to as we consider what it means to be such a community. Number one, because of our Passover lamb in Christ, we have forgiveness. I don't know what's in your life. We're talking about a lot of things from a distance. But whatever it might be, whether it might be the sin of incest all the way down to the quiet sin of undetected pride. Do you know, dear brother, dear sister, Jesus is eager to forgive you because he's the Passover lamb who has taken the judgment of God that we deserve. He has taken the wrath of God in our place. And don't you understand how powerful this is, not just to know that you are forgiven, but because it's the very enduring experience of guilt and shame that often causes us to hide in the corner undetected. It's that that makes us distance ourselves from the community and avoid all accountability and confrontation. Shame puts us into hiding. Dear friends, let the Passover lamb of Christ pull you back out of darkness into the light and into the love of Christ. He loves you so. And that includes all of us to know that we are, if we're in Christ, together forgiven. That we might therefore then challenge one another, but with a humble spirit, knowing that we all stand on level ground before the foot of the cross. So there's no place for judginess and no place for arrogance. If you're a forgiven sinner, we come to one another simply as that, as forgiven, beloved sinners. Number two, Christ is our Passover lamb. And so the call here in discipline is a call to freedom from slavery to sin. This is a freedom project. Jesus says, I have pulled you out of slavery to sin where you had no choice and now you can choose to live freely. Now you have power to live as you have been created to live, recreated in Christ. But thirdly, Christ is our Passover lamb and therefore we are called to recognize that we are the new unleavened batch of Christ in the church. That we already have been made pure. We are new. Paul underscores this when he says this in verse 7, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. You see, dear friends, you are, we are as a community in Christ already made new and made clean. You're not cleansing yourself of sin. You're living in light of the clean status that you've already been given. I don't know if you are, but my children are big fans of Moana. All right, I am too. 
In the climax of the movie at the end, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it by now, I'm sorry. <laughs> is when Moana approaches with great courage Taka, the great volcano monster who is resolved to crush her and her sidekick, Maui. When she suddenly discovers that Taka is actually the terribly transformed island goddess Tefiti on the inside. And so she confronts Taka and speaks to her and, and sings this song, which I won't be singing to you, and says these words next time maybe. This lava monster, angry destroyer, terribleness, this is not who you are. This is not who you are. I know who you really are. And so the word of God says the same to us. This batch of dough that shrugs at sin, that overlooks the malignancy of the soul that out of fear and pride it turns our faces away from one another or from our own souls. That is not who you really are. You are new in Christ. You are pure in Christ. You belong to Christ. You are son of the living God, daughter of the king, a new batch of unleavened dough. Don't you want to be who you really are individually and corporately as a church? Because Christ has died to set us free. And so our final question as we close, what would it look like for us to become this kind of community? Yes, a community that's caring and safe and gracious and winsome, but also a community that's truth-telling and honest about our sin. A community that loves the gospel and knows the gospel enough to free each other to really be gently and wonderfully corrected, but also knows the gospel enough that God has sent his son to die to make you into something that you can't possibly imagine you're one day going to be, new in Christ. And he's already set that process in motion. If you want to be a part of that sort of transformed community, do you want to be new? Do you want to be the church of Christ? A church that abounds in tough love. Let's pray. Jesus, we had a lot, to, a lot of ground to cover here, but it's such an important task and topic, and we pray that you would make things clear, clearer than I had words to explain things which, with, but we pray that you would make it clear in our hearts, most of all, that we would trust you, that we'd follow you, give us grace from your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.